The first reading is from Amos 5:21 to 27. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You lifted up a shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. The second reading is from Revelation 18, 1 to 5. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had a great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great! She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of earth have committed adultery with her. The merchants of earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. And the last reading, Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated at the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, fill us with all joy and hope in believing by the power of your Holy Spirit. And for Jesus' sake, amen. So we're in a fourth week in a series called Alternatives to Christian Hope and Their Antidotes. In this series, we've been addressing a daily reality that exists for all of us, namely the temptation to abandon divine Christian hope for an alternative that looks good. Our temptation, like ancient Israel, is to want to go back to Egypt when the Promised Land is ahead of us. And we want to do that because the wilderness is hard. Uh, these attractives seem, uh, these alternatives seem attractive 
They even look like Christian hope if you squint. They sound like legitimate alternatives until you do some research, until you look at um, biblical Christian hope, the glory of Christian hope, which is universal, comprehensive, decisive, and satisfying. And our aim in the series is to, is to provide an antidote to the alternative hopes and then to point you back to the promised land, to resurrection hope. We listen to your feedback. We want the series to have legs in your real life, not just isms. So in the coming four weeks, we're going to look at these following alternatives. And I hope it's valuable for you. This week, our potential alternative to Christian hope is progressivism. That is the incremental or sometimes revolutionary movement forward in cultures and societies. Now, we planned this topic and put it in the calendar before we realized it would be the day after the referendum, which of course among all of our topics is in the progressive space. And I wrote this sermon before hearing the result. And let me read this to you. When I write this, the polls were saying no, but who knows? Now we do. Someone said to me uh, a couple of weeks ago, you better write two sermons. You wouldn't want to seem uh, to be tone deaf. But I'm not going to write two sermons. I'm not going to. I'm not trying to be tone deaf either. I know it's been hard for many. But the reason I'm not going to write two sermons is that I believe that this message is true whether yes or no had prevailed, and it will be true two years ago or two years from now, or 2,000 years from now. In fact, it is at the heart of my argument that Christian hope isn't dependent on political outcomes, on no political outcomes, none of them. It speaks to those political outcomes, but it is, not, it is not dependent on them. I believe that this Christian hope we have speaks to our world, it challenges our world, it challenges our churches, it challenges ourselves, our faith, but it transcends our world. It is bigger than any human achieved social progression. It is infinitely bigger than political hopes, even as it speaks to political hopes, it's not apolitical, but rather uh, Christian hope provides in many ways the context for many of our hopes. Indeed, this is its power. Now, this is a conversation, this talk. I, um, my lane is Bible teaching, and I want to stay in my lane. Uh, my job is to point people to Christ and give people the Christian hope and to teach the Bible. I can do all that, I think. You know, good solid six out of ten. <laughs> I'm not a social commentator. And so I want to enter a dialogue with you on these matters and I'd like you to come to me afterwards and say, you missed this, uh, this is wrong or this is good. I'd love you to enter a dialogue with me. Five points today similar but slightly different from first week and second week. 
What is the Christian hope in this space? Secondly, today's alternative is progressivism, but I want to talk briefly about its cousin, conservatism, or is it progressivism's doppelganger? It's possibly a doppelganger. Third, what is why it's a legitimate alternative to many people. Um, fourth, why it's too small to be a true alternative to Christian hope. And lastly, what is its antidote? Firstly, what is Christian hope? Well, Christian hope is a future hope, Hebrews 11 and 12. It's secured by God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it has, at the same time, individual, communal, ecclesiastical, familial, and political implications for now. It's not divorced from those things. It has implications for those things. But mark this, it is a future hope, and as we shall soon discuss, for a decisive moment in the future. Now, don't get that wrong. You get that wrong, and a Christian can easily put all their hopes in incremental advances in human political hopes for now, not for the future, for now. And then many people, of course, crash their lives on a utopian dream or even an idol worship of a future of the way a society might, might uh, pan out and quite often damage others and, and themselves in the process through disappointment, um, anger, frustration, judgmentalism. This is not to put brakes on your involvement in this life, not in any way. You've got to hear me on this. That said, you could also believe that the future hope is a decisive one and also get it wrong. This is when a group goes all apocalyptic. Watch out for that cult, especially the one that has guns. But this is hardly our danger. Christian hope is also not an individual hope alone. The concept of a soul, a single soul going to heaven when they die, and that's it. This is not us. Uh, Christian hope is embodied, it encompasses the world, it in, indeed it, it encompasses the universe. That our political, pro we have zero impact on the universe. But Christian hope has the universe in mind. We believe in creation, we are not Gnostics, where it's just all enlightenment and the spirit. Uh, we believe in the world in which we live. Christian hope takes seriously what the prophet Amos said, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Bring it on. Bearing in mind that the context there was Amos addressing religious people ahead of an exile. They sing their songs of worship. You know, they come to church with God on their lips, but not in their hearts or in their lives. Something Jesus criticized the Pharisees for. But Amos wanted to see justice and righteousness in God's world. And he fits in line with the prophets. Jesus had the prophets in mind and the future in mind when he spoke of the hope that he was bringing in and the hope that he brings in is comprehensive. It's not just about the individual being saved. He called it the kingdom of God. He said it was a hand and you have to be ready for it. We want, indeed, Jesus taught us to pray. We've already prayed it today. The prayer is, your kingdom come, bring it. Your will be done on earth. Now you hear me? On earth, 
your will, O God, done on earth as it currently is in heaven, in the abode of God. We want that justice and righteousness to roll on like a river. But this prayer is ultimately answered in the New Testament at a decisive moment, even as though churches and communities move forward in line with the kingdom of God, the prayer is answered not primarily, not primarily in progressive moments, but in one moment. The language of the New Testament, indeed of Jesus, is that it comes at his appearing, at the resurrection, when he comes, at what Jesus called the renewal of all things, Christian hope is indeed resurrection hope, a point I made two weeks ago. And so we need to wait patiently and watch ourselves. And this is key to then act in line with that future kingdom now while we wait. Which is why you are to tell the truth and stay sexually pure and watch out for greed and look out for the cause of the vulnerable. But ultimately, God ushers in his kingdom, not ushered in by governments or politicians or mere human agitation. People like Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche hated this, for it involved good Christian people waiting and praying and forgiving their enemies and praying for them instead of rising up. Religion, therefore, is the opiate of the masses. But oh, oh, did this approach, this way of Jesus Christ, this hope, did it change the world or what? We'll come to that. Yes. <laughs> this is what is being said in Revelation 8, 10 and 21, just read to us a moment ago. To a people suffering, to a people with no voice, no vote, no place in the polis, no seat at the table, people being slaughtered by the power of the unstoppable Roman Empire and can't fight back, you get this revelation of hope, of a decisive, comprehensive victory of the Son of God in, an, in a word of justice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Babylon had fallen hundreds of years before this, so it's a metaphor, but it is political. It is about the ultimate fall of the ultimate Rome and all the Romes that succeed Rome and all the kings and powers that grew rich off her injustices, but it is a decisive moment in the future and there's a note of resounding joy, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That's where we get the hallelujah chorus from. Handel's Messiah, or sing it in your mind as we speak, or at least Graham Hughes is. That's about the fall of Babylon. So don't be a part of such evil. Take no part in it. Come out and wait for the hope that God has promised, which is, chapter 21, the positive side of the hope coin then I saw a new heavens and a new earth coming down, right? Uh, what? Well, sorry. The new heavens and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea or chaos. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, not the old one, thank God, coming down decisively out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Apostle John mixes his metaphors, 
whole point is, at the decisive moment in the future, and in that moment, he will dwell amongst his people, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So if you see, you see tears, if you see crying, or pain, if you see mourning, or even death, then you know that this hasn't happened. And yet, verse 5, he who was seated on the throne, Jesus Christ, we tend to sit ourselves on the throne. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. But here's the key to understanding this. The church had no political clout when the New Testament was written. They were weak, powerless. It begs the question, what do you do when you're a Christian people with power? This is the question that has dogged Christianity since Constantine. Western democracy had not risen to give a voice and a vote to all, no freedom of speech, no universal human rights. In fact, it's very simple to argue, as many have, that you in fact need Christianity in the air to spread the scriptural truth in the Jewish scriptures that every human being is made in the image of God and that grace and truth and justice, justice and righteousness and love are indeed at the center of God's world. And so in the New Testament, Christian hope comes to a weak people whose hope is found in a strong God who will one day decisively act. And so what they were to do was to wait, to pray, to watch yourselves, don't fall over. You know, the word is within the communities. Act now in this world, neighbors, workplaces, certainly in the church, as you are able in line with the future to come the one who's seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. And so we want God's name hallowed in all the earth. We want God's kingdom to come. We want God's will done on earth. Yes, but in the meantime, give us today our daily bread. Give me what I need today. Forgive my sins, even as I learn to forgive those who sin against me. Lead me not into a time of testing. Deliver me from the evil one. You see how the Lord's Prayer is such a gift to us. We started our service this way. We'll say it a second time in response to this message. Second then, today's alternative, progressivism and its cousin, conservatism. Both progressivism, movement forward, and conservatism, a sort of looking back, are in our society a dialogue and a fight about the future. That's why they are cousins. They are about the future. Wikipedia has a good definition of progressivism. It's quoting the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, namely, progressivism holds that it is possible to improve human societies through political reform. This is evidently true, yes? Powerfully true, that in many ways there are improvements to human society through political reform. Witness the move to abolish slavery, and child protection. Some of you are asking, is the world better than it was? And some of you, yes, some say no, some say the same, but this is evidently true. But as a political movement, progressivism seeks to advance the human condition through social reform based on purported advancements in science, technology, economic development, and social organization, and has a very strong um, 19th century drive in this direction, coming out of the Enlightenment and indeed the Christian gospel. 
Progressivism sees human societies in a linear fashion, progressing forward and assuming that things will get better rather than worse as long as we persuade others, remain vigilant, align our institutions, our lives to just and moral systems. Now, because it's a linear vision of history, it therefore is in line with the Judeo-Christian theology. Therefore, it makes more sense in the West where the Christian gospel has taken hold rather than in countries with Eastern philosophies. And it's summed up on the street with simple common phrases you hear on Facebook and the like. For example, come on, get yourself on the right side of history. To which I say, is there really a right side of history? Do you really believe that? Or, Rob Forsyth's favorite, it's 1923. Excuse me, let me start again. Just seeing if you're awake. It's 2023. <laughs> I'm after all a 20th century kind of guy. It's 2023, as if things are supposed to have progressed. It's not 1950s. Or, I saw this on Facebook last night, Who'd have thought in this day and age that X or Y or Z should happen? See how each of those phrases assumes a forward step, not a cyclical one. Perhaps the most famous person to express this sort of thing is Martin Luther King Jr. when he said the moral, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. What's interesting is the amount of people who are atheist or agnostic who take this on faith. They don't get challenged for their faith. They don't, get, they don't get told, you have blind faith. But they take this on faith, that it will bend towards justice. Without a God bending it towards justice, how do we know that the moral universe is long and that it bends towards chaos? It's an option. Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., I should say, was quoting a 19th century sermon by an abolitionist called Theodore Parker, uh, more uh, in the Deus tradition of the, 19th, the 20th, 18th century America, when he said this, he wanted to keep his eyes on the world rather than on the revelation of God, and so, but listen to this, look at the facts of the world. You see a continual and progressive triumph of the right, small r, not capital R. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. Perhaps some of you feel that way. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. But from what I see, I am sure that it bends towards justice. Just so we're clear, conservatism, conservatism also leans forward and is about human hopes in this world and it is political. I'm going to fight my culture. They're, all, they're both sides. But adherents are more likely to believe that returning to tried and true values are the best things for others, for society, for the poor and the vulnerable, and for all. Some people will say that conservatives only care for themselves, and I'm sure that's true in some circumstances, 
but we should not demonise an entire group of people. Some, some say the return to the tried and true values is good for all. Thirdly, why it's a legitimate alternative to many. Well, it depends on your reform. Not all reforms are healthy and all are complicated in this political world, which is why we argue and debate, and we ought to argue and debate without demonising our opponents, nor assuming the worst, nor attributing motive. And I've got to say, in the last couple of weeks, both sides, I've seen a whole lot of that. And, you know, if you're not a Christian, you, you could decide it's a problem to do, to demonise opponents, assume the worst, and attribute motives, but you're not required to. But if you are a follower of Jesus, do not demonise your opponents, do not assume the worst, and do not attribute motive. In Christian terms, it's a legitimate alternative to Christian hope for many because many of the reforms we seek genuinely align with the kingdom of God. They seem to, at least to us, and this is true, I believe, throughout history. Within the first couple of centuries, the Christian gospel addressed infanticide. Although, are we returning to that space? I don't know. The equality of women before God, a genuine movement forward with the gospel. Protection of the poor and the vulnerable. The abolition of slavery, eventually. Fair rights for workers. Accessibility of education for all. Accessibility of health care. Accessibility. Protection of children. And alongside of this, individual rights and individual responsibilities. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of association, rule of law, limitations of powers, separation of powers, all of this, all two sides of the one civic coin, and I believe all embedded into the Christian story. It's all there. Tom Holland in Dominion reckons that the right and the left views in Western society, stripped of a language of God, stripped of God himself, has become basically one version of Christianity dialoguing with another version. Fascinating thesis. Many of these things, all of them maybe, are aligned with the new things that God is doing. And uh, some of you have worked in, in, in uh, all sorts of fields where you can see yourself acting in line with the kingdom of God. And I thank God for each of you. But I do urge you to read The Air We Breathe, how we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress and equality by Glenn Scrivener, a very thoughtful Australian living in the UK. <clears throat> Genuinely worthwhile reading that book. It's a seven-hour audible listen, if that's your thing. Why it's too small, though, to be a true alternative to Christian hope? I want to say to you this, that any agenda you have in this life, if it's your sole agenda, is too small. It doesn't make it unimportant. I'm not trying to minimise the work that we do, but it's too small compared to Christian hope. If a person were to be a progressive without God, as many are, or sometimes effectively or practically without God, that is to choose progressivism as an alternative to the Christian hope offered, I would say your goal, important though it may be, is too small. The arc of God's universe is long, and it does bend towards justice, Amos chapter 5, but it's God's universe, not ours. 
and he is and will make all things new. He will put the world to rights. It's called the victory of the Son of God. This is our hope, and it is resurrection hope, and it will be universal, comprehensive, decisive, and satisfying for those in him. But God is the ultimate change agent. In Mary's song, it's God who lifts up the hungry and feeds the poor and brings down the rich and the mighty from their thrones. God does that. Doesn't come through a political revolution. Doesn't come through a five-year plan or a cultural war or cultural revolution. Communism is, after all, a Christian heresy. Sharing resources happened voluntarily in the life of the early church and indeed now, and I know that because I know the way you act towards each other. And I love it. But you can't have governments forcing it without the will of the people. God makes changes through his people as they advocate for others and live in line with the kingdom of God in their workplaces, locations, families, neighbourhoods and communities. But these things take time. They take time. Slavery, I believe, was going to end the moment Israel were redeemed from Egypt. That was the narrative, the gospel narrative. It was going to end, I believe, the moment that God chose to identify as a crucified slave. This is our gospel, but it took time, perhaps too much time. It goes on. And God's people do their thing, like William Wilberforce and others, and they do, I hope, I pray, without looking down on others. They do it without being, if I can put it this way, social justice warriors fighting those who aren't. Rather, we need to be people advocating for the right thing, the just thing, by doing, rather than condescending or sneering. And it won't be finished in this lifetime, not a chance. As we progress in one area, we experience regression in another area. I think this is self-evident. Three steps forward, two steps back. Or maybe it's ten steps forward, nine steps back. I don't know. I feel deeply for those who care very deeply about our world, but don't have God and his hope as a, 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 an anchor for their soul. And they often dedicate their lives to a cause at deep cost to self, who then see no change or the incremental changes they make swamped by a despot who just sweeps in and decimates all the good work. They see more politics, more regression, a mammoth task. Whereas in Christ, a follower of Jesus can indeed die without seeing the promised land, knowing that there is a resurrection to come in which every wrong will be righted, every right action vindicated, but not according to the will of humans, but according to the plumb line of God. And it's God's will and way, his plumb line, that makes a matter right, not my sense of injustice. C.S. Lewis makes sense to me, as he often does. Those of you playing C.S. Lewis bingo can call out bingo right now. Look at this. Before I became a Christian, Lewis says, my argument against God then was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. 
But, where, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? He goes on to say that justice is God's idea, his plumb line, and this is actually why human beings want it, whether they know it or not. Justice is wonderful, but justice alone, hanging in a balloon, without divine context, is just human beings guessing which path is the best one, and exercise then with power, and good things as well as terrible things have been wrought by such thinking. Fifth and finally, what is its antidote? Well, an antidote is a medicine taken to counteract a poison, and progression is not itself a poison, nor is conservatism. Progression is just a movement forward, and anyone with a knowledge of history knows that it is just a movement forward, but also knows that it can be a poison, depending on the despot and the path in which they are moving forward and taking others with them. But the antidote to progressivism as an alternative to Christian hope is to rediscover resurrection hope to know, to know where God is taking the world. The host of Brisbane's ABC Drive, Steve Austin, you've not heard his name because you don't live in Brisbane, he tried to discover the Prime Minister's hidden depths earlier this month by asking him what he meant when he described himself as a progressive. And I don't judge anybody who's in a live radio interview. I'm not here to judge the Prime Minister, whom I respect, for his office alone, let alone his person. Steve Austin said, and I quote, Prime Minister, what are we progressing towards? What is the end point for a progressive today? Anthony Albanese, well, there is no end point by definition. Austin, that means we're on a treadmill. Albanese, no, no, it doesn't at all. It means you are constantly, it means you constantly progress and move forward. Austin, forward to what? To a mythical nirvana? Albanese, no, to a more inclusive society, to one that has better opportunity regardless of people's birth or people's ethnicity, religion or gender. Now, shibboleths aside, who does not want what Albanese wants? And indeed, you could argue that Albanese himself is coming there from a Christian perspective. But a Christian isn't governed by the hopes of Anthony Albanese or Qantas's hopes or indeed my personal hopes. When you see, when you wipe out the transcendent, right? A friend of mine has this argument that we live on the ground floor, like the real stuff of life. But we've always done life on the ground floor, mindful of what is above in the second floor, the floor above, which is the transcendent, God, the ideals, which leak into this world, which is why we do life on ground floor. We used to bear in mind the floor above, the transcendent. My friend has said this, over the last 200 years, we've put a bulldozer to the floor above and washed away the transcendent. After all, God is dead. 
But human beings can't live in the first four alone. We're not animals. And so we tend to push things that are important to us up and make them idols, make them God. We try to make our life have meaning through pushing things from the ground floor to a floor we call transcendence, which of course is why we believe that our thing is the most important thing and we look down on everybody else. But a Christian says, in weakness and humility, Maranatha, come Lord. We act in line with the kingdom of God to come and we do so in humility and pray God without self-righteousness. Indeed, we pray the Lord's Prayer together. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Together we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, which really is a prayer about Christian hope and about our lives now. It starts with the grandest possibilities and finishes with just the things we need now to live our lives. So together, for the second time today, ahead of a song of worship, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.